Welcome to episode 56 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. We're delighted this podcast is brought to you with the support of our sponsor, Coots, who have long experience helping high net worth clients navigate the complex property market. Coots are very used to more complex income streams and know that in this current market, speed is undoubtedly king. So they help clients have their finances in place so that they're able to act quickly, grabbing that desirable property first. No one wants to be gazumped or lose in a sealed bid situation, and Coots could help ensure you're in a really strong position to deal with those eventualities. Coots have seen that where their clients establish lines of credit and have agreements in principle set in place before they're ready making an offer, they're in a better position to secure the perfect property when it comes along. Visit coots.com to discover more. Barbara Taylor Bradford, OBE since 2007, is the legendary best-selling author who sold an astonishingly massive amount of books, 90 million plus, globally. Her first book, A Woman of Substance, was published in 1979 and spawned a seven-book saga, telling the story of Emma Hart and her family retail empire. A Woman of Substance alone sold over 30 million copies and resulted in a television miniseries watched by 13.9 million people in 1985, the biggest audience in Channel 4's history. Barbara's published 35 novels since 1979, bestsellers both sides of the Atlantic. She lives in New York, but is just for a few days perching at her favourite London hotel, the Dorchester, while she launches her latest book, a man of honour. I've read the book and can testify to it being an absolute page turner and we're honoured and delighted to have Barbara on our podcast today. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning, Charlotte. I know Ed's really disappointed he can't be here, but I'm so happy that you found time in your insane schedule to squeeze us in. So can we start by talking about the premise of A Man of Honour? Because at the tender age of 88, you've gone right back to where you started and written a prequel to A Woman of Substance. Now, I gather you were inspired to write this during the time your husband and collaborator of many, many years, the film producer Robert Bradford, was sadly dying. Well, I was sitting with Bob in the hospital and I knew that I, I, I'd been made to understand that he'd had this massive stroke and probably would not change from being in this very deep sleep, I, that he would never speak to me again. But that day, as I sat there, I thought, he's not going to live and how am I going to be able to write another book ever? And how am I going to be able to write this book that's due in the Falconer series, uh, which requires a great deal of research? And I knew I couldn't do it. I knew I was going to be devastated. And I had a sudden thought as I sat there, and it was this. I wish I could write a book about somebody I knew, a character I knew. I would wish I could write about Emma Hart. That would be so easy to do another book about her. And then I thought, no, you can't do that. You've written seven. <laughs> and, and then I thought, but I didn't write much about Blackie. It was always there in the book. It was always in her life. He was her best friend, never a lover, always her pal. They shared many ambitions and dreams. They were very like in many ways. But I don't really know about him. I didn't really tell you anything about his private life, the reader. And so when I got home that night from the hospital, I picked up a woman of substance and went through it. And we did see him a lot 
and he was always with her. And I thought there's a whole book about Blackie and I couldn't think it out then because I was concerned about Bob. But six months later, after a lot of grief and being unable to write anything or do anything, I knew I better start writing because he'd always said, you must keep your job, you must keep your career if anything happens to me first. So I sat down and I wrote an outline, which I always have to do. I had days when I was not so good, but somehow I wrote the book and it really helped me. He he was right. It kept me busy and it gave me a lot of solace, you know. And I wrote the book in hand. It was entirely written no. by pen. No. How long did it take you? It took me about uh, 18 months to write. I, I found it was difficult to type on this typewriter I have because the paper was far away. So I just sat down with a calligraphy pen on white paper and wrote it. Sent it to my typist who typed it. How amazing. And you don't use a computer then? Not to write. I've never been able to write on a computer. I can't. The screen gets... I, I'm intimidated by the screen. I'm really interested in your obviously unbelievably winning formulae. And I'm wondering if they're partly winning because your characters are very reassuring. I mean, Emma Hart, who of course is the woman of substance whom we meet in A Man of Honour, in a way... She sort of embodies the American dream of sort of sheer hard work, you know, apply yourself with energy and you'll rise. I mean, do you think that's partly why your books have had such resonance in the States as well as here? And I think that drive, ambition and desire to do something to rise above your life and become somebody else uh, is English too. As a matter of fact, I have decided that Emma Hart is actually Barbara Taylor Bradford. <laughs> Indeed. Because I, but since Bob's death, I manage his assets, I talk to bookkeepers and accountants, and I talk to uh, all of the brokers who manage his assets on Wall Street. And I said to a friend the other day, I've become Emma Hart. She said, don't be daft. You are Emma Hart. How could you write about a businesswoman if you didn't know anything about business? Bob taught you. And so I said, do you think I'm Emma Hart? She said, yes. You're <laughs> driven. You're ambitious. You still want to do it all. And you're 88 years old and you have a brain of a 58-year-old. And there you are, wanting to do it all over again. I think the point of a woman of substance, if I'd written that book today about a woman now, it wouldn't have had the impact because we've got a lot of women tycoons and successful businesswomen. But in 1900, it was unheard of. Mm. Look, she was a 1979 woman that was like me, but she was in 1900. Now, I'm really interested as well to ask you about the coup de food because it's no secret that you and your husband fell in love at first sight in 1961. You were married for well over 50 years, so it absolutely worked. But your novels might suggest otherwise. I mean, Blackie actually doesn't propose to the woman that he has a coup de food with. So, so what are your thoughts on love at first sight? Well, I think it does happen. I mean, I met Bob 
until uh, lunch that had been prearranged, and I hadn't wanted to go, be, be, not because I didn't like him, I didn't even <laughs> know him, but I wasn't interested in meeting a man at that time, and I had that particular day I was being invited. I was late on a deadline when I was on the London Evening News, and I really thought I'll spend Sunday doing this. I've got to have this in on Monday morning. And when I was invited to this lunch, I said, I really cannot come because I've got to do have a deadline. And the people persuaded me. Anyway, we got to cut a long story short. I agreed to go. And of course, three people walked in. Bob, I didn't know it was Bob, a tall man, a very beautiful redhead, and a short man. And I thought, oh, the redhead must be with the tall man because she's so good looking and the small man isn't so much of a specimen. But the tall man happened to be Bob. And we started to talk and we didn't stop talking. I thought, where's the smell of the roast beef? There wasn't one. We, we went <laughs> to an Indian restaurant. And uh, over the lunch, we, I sat next to Bob. We never spoke to anybody else. We just talked to each other. And he suddenly said, what are you doing later? And I said, oh, nothing. <laughs> and my hostess said, what about your deadline? And I said, oh, I'll get up at four in the morning and write it. And he looked at me in surprise and said, would you do that? I said, Yes. He said, well, let's go to the movies. What did you see? Do you know, I can't remember the name and I have to look it up. You probably talked all the way through it. <laughs> no, we didn't, but he, we didn't, but he did get a hold of my hand. And Bob was staying in London and we started to see each other all the time. And within two weeks, uh, we knew this was it. It was a coup de food. I mean, from the moment I met him, we never stopped talking. <laughs> And we went on talking forever. I was married to him for 56 years almost. And I knew him two years before we got married. Gosh. So it was a coup de food. And then we got married here in England. And then I went to live, into, uh, went to live with him in America. And we were only ever separated when he had to go to the coast. And I, was a, I became a journalist there. And then I had... Finally, the idea for a woman of substance, and he said, write it, and I did. And then he made the movies of my books. Amazing. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating to go on your website because you obviously have such a massive fan base in the States. Now, now I know you said you're, you feel the English woman abroad still drinking your tailors of Harrogate tea and so on, but how English... Do you still feel after years in New York? And I guess my last question is, you know, what's, well, two questions really, what's next and where's home now? Well, I'm English, I'm British down to my toes. <laughs> I think of myself as an English woman living in New York. I feel very British. I've, I haven't changed. I haven't become Americanized, And uh, I never did. I never will. But I... I I like living in America. It's a, it's home for a way, in a way for me because I have a lot of friends. But I have a lot of friends here. I think I really have two homes. And what's in the future? Well, I'll write the Falconer book, and then I'm going to do a series about a theatrical family. So I'm sticking with families, and I'm sticking with. Well, I'm going to do the Edwardian era. 
um, for the family of the theatrical people. Um, so I'm going to keep writing and um, keep going. And as Churchill said, keep buggering on. And that's me. Well, quite right. What a wonderful note to end on, Emma Hart. <laughs> Thank you so much. What an absolute delight that was. Thank you very much indeed, Barbara. Thank you. Thank you very much, Charlotte. The legendary photojournalist Robert Capra once said, if your pictures aren't good enough, you aren't close enough, which is a maxim taken very much to heart by the photographer David Yarrow, who has a sensational exhibition called Changing Lanes that's just opened at the Maddox Gallery on London's Westbourne Grove. David is one of the world's biggest selling photographers, commanding stupendous prices for his works and known for his intense close-ups of everything from wild animals to sports stars and supermodels. His latest exhibition presents new shots captured in the pandemic alongside some of his most iconic images to comprise an extraordinary breadth of subjects from the Wild West to Wall Street. And he's here to tell us all about it. Good morning, David. Good morning. It's good to be here. Well, good morning, David. We're delighted to have you on as I am lucky enough to have had a sneak preview of some of the photographs and saw you give an absolutely fascinating talk about them. We talk a lot about art on this podcast, but it is sometimes really frustrating not to be able to show our listeners what we're on about, as your photographs really do rather defy description. I think you're right that uh, art, my art, is always better seen physically than virtually. I think if pictures, any artist's work is on a, a screen, it doesn't give the complete experience. And my photographs are large. I think we live in an era where large art sells and uh, our bigger pieces are the size of a, I guess just around a pool table size. And it is difficult to do it justice on in an Apple Mac uh, screen. Of course, the bigger the picture, the less the margin for error, either in the subject matter or the execution of that subject matter. And, uh, I'm very tough on myself. Um, I, I read a quote from, Jeff Bezos the other day where he, he said he wanted to be the most consumer-centric company in the world. Uh, I, I think I want to be the most wall-centric uh, artist in the world to the extent that I'm deeply conscious that if someone, someone puts a piece of work on their wall to, to last for their lifetime, and hopefully to be passed on, it better be damn good. I'm not a wildlife photographer. I think wildlife photography struggles to be art because it's too literal. We, we know what a giraffe looks like. We know what a, a zebra looks like. We don't need to be told and then be told by the practitioner that it's art. I think that's a bit pompous. I think the best art is interpretive is storytelling art. And that's very much where I, I feel at home. Uh, sometimes that will include animals. Sometimes it will include people. Sometimes it include both. Uh, when we're working with uh, people and staging photographs, we, we tend to work with the very best. Uh, we have in the show that opens tonight, I think the two girls that um, uh, take up a large section of the cake, uh, which is Cindy Crawford and, and Cara Delevingne. Of course, they're very different. Cara's um, half Cindy's age. Cindy wouldn't want to be reminded that Cindy's my age and looks half my age as well. Uh, uh, but they're both um, exceptional at what they do. And that um, exceptionalism is a, is a function of not just aesthetics, but intelligence, manners, uh, professionalism, um, playing a role, and the trust that we built up together over, over the years. With Cindy, we recently um, reshot 
her iconic 1992 Pepsi ad, which was played in the Super Bowl in 1992, I think still goes down as one of the top two watched adverts of all time. And so I took her back to the same gas station outside Los Angeles and we recreated the shot, which was uh, quite a bit of pressure given iconic how iconic that advert was. The principle, the premise of the project was a philanthropic one. And uh, her brother sadly lost his life to, to cancer at an early age. Cindy's thrust of her philanthropic endeavors is towards a hospital, groundbreaking cancer hospital in Wisconsin, just north of uh, Chicago. And uh, I think we raised 2.4 million in a weekend, which is not bad from one photograph. But can I just cut in there and just, just ask you, it's not just a recreation of the Pepsi ad. There is quite an important addition that wasn't in the Pepsi ad. There's a couple of wolves in the car. <laughs> Yeah, because if for those that remember that Pepsi ad, the the, the storyline where there are two boys looking over the fence uh, at Sydney filling up with petrol, and everyone thought they were looking at her, but ultimately then they said to each other, "What a beautiful new can of Pepsi." I think uh, the world has, unfortunately, from 1992, regressed a little bit in terms of illiberal liberalism and wokeness. And I think to have two underage boys uh, with an iconic supermodel now in a still picture where you cannot tell the narrative would be dangerous. Uh, and so we replaced those boys with wolves. Uh, <laughs> and they could be a kind of allegory to, or a nod to every uh, hot-blooded male that had been waiting 30 years for Cindy to refuel at that uh, petrol station. How, how are you coping with the rise of wokeism? I love that question. I'm, I'm uh, doing a, uh, being interviewed by Piers Morgan tomorrow night, and I know that Piers and I are just going to go off of it. <laughs> I think some of the things that are going on now are just quite extraordinary. And for the creative art industry, whether you be a comedian, whether you be a black comedian, whether you be a white comedian, whether you be someone that is trying to push boundaries in film or music or writing, it does certainly clip your wings. Because if your initial starting premises, the starting every day is, I'm not going to be cancelled today, I don't think that's a particularly uh, healthy starting point for the creative arts. From my own perspective, I, we're careful. The one thing that really irritates me, though, and I will, I will home in on this, is I do not think a culture of anger is a, is a helpful one. I think it's incredibly uh, noble of a 17, 18-year-old Swedish girl to raise the consciousness of the world in terms of the fragility of our planet. But equally, I also think it's rather disheartening and slightly patronizing to be told collectively we're all rubbish, where so many people of our generation have devoted their lives to trying to make the planet a better place in their own way. So I think we should offer a narrative of hope as well as a narrative of anger. And some of the unhinged commentary that we have to live with on a day-to-day -day basis is just nonsense. Mm. I think that's a very shrewd, shrewd analysis. Mm. You love big Hollywood blockbusters by people like Ridley Scott, Quentin Tarantino and the Coen brothers. And so many of your photographs are inspired by them. So give our listeners a feel for some of them. You've got some fantastic Western images. And of course, one inspired by Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street, which also features a real wolf, of course. These wolves get a lot, a lot of runouts. Tell us about those pictures. Well, the, the, the Scorsese black comedy, uh, Wolf of Wall Street, is up there as 
one of the great black comedies of all time. And Scorsese is a big hero of mine um, in terms of his innate sense of framing pictures, telling a story. Uh, he's he's a genius, and I got the chance to recreate some of the pictures from Wolf of Wall Street. We've done two so far, uh, using the real Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort, who was played by, by Leonardo DiCaprio. And we did the one recently on the boat where the, the FBI are on the boat and then the lobsters are thrown at the boat. And it was a little bit of responsibility because days like that, when you're out at sea on a big boat and you've got well-known people, you've got a, a wolf, albeit because of wokeness now, we don't use wolves. We use Tamascan dogs, which are 99% wolf, but they are regarded as a dog rather than a wolf. But didn't you get into trouble with that photograph for throwing lobsters around? I mean, that you told a very funny story about, you know, here's here are wolves in this picture and all kinds of things going on. And, and apparently people got cross about the lobsters and they were dead anyway. <laughs> no, we got that. We got yeah, So how cruel to the lobster. <laughs> And we bought them. They'd been they'd been cooked in a seaside <laughs> seafront restaurant in Los Angeles. So I think the lobster already had it. Um, but you, you, that's the sort of stuff you have to deal with. Yeah. And uh, but that, that picture uh, worked well. It, everything came off. There's a bit of pressure on days like that because when you throw in all our costs and we pay for the, the production of these things, that's a kind of hundred. That's a kind of hundred, hundred thousand, hundred and fifty thousand dollar day, and. If I haven't got my moment right, and the light, if you're on the west coast off LA, you've got to wait till the sun's quite low to shoot that shot. You can't really do it with a high sun. Uh, and then the sun, as we all know, anywhere in the world, when it starts to go down, it can go down quite quickly. So you've got a half an hour window to get everyone in the right place. And then you're dealing with wolves, lobsters, helicopters. So there's a little bit of uh, pressure, but pressure's always good. With, with the... Um, we shot uh, recently a little take on Tarantino's uh, Django Unchained, another great black comedy. And uh, I, um, there's the closing dance scene um, uh, with uh, uh, Kerry Washington and uh, Jamie Foxx. And I, um, we found a, a, a great American couple, very well-known American couple to fill in for them, the Seattle Seahawks a quarterback, Russell Wilson, his wife, Ciara. And they are as sort of powerhouse uh, uh, black American couples. They're right up there at the moment. So I took them up to Montana and we then had to burn the set down, just like the plantation house in Django was burned down. And that was that was a fun thing to do. The Coen brothers, they are the consummate storytellers and their little anthologies, personal anthologies to the Wild West and life on the final frontier are things that I've always been prompted by. Uh, they're 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 great storytellers. So we got we did a uh, uh, got a shot called Fargo, which is a bit of an ode to them, where all that money was found in a snowy field in the middle of nowhere. And then, of course, No Country for Old Men, uh, which was a, a, an Oscar-winning movie from way back in 2007, which was very much life, uh, tough life in West Texas. So the film is a prompt for me. I, I'm in awe of filmmakers. Spielberg will always be my hero. Um, I think he's the most emotionally invested storyteller of, of our generation. The, the, the tough thing for filmmakers is they, they have to do it for two hours, whereas I have to tell a story in 250th of a second. That's where the tough bit is for me, because to tell a story in a single frame 
is a challenge. Well, you're in unbelievably good at it. And 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 just before we let you go, can you can you tell us about your the latest photograph that you had on display the other day, catwalk? Because that really is a staggering photograph. Uh, yeah, I mean that's going to be unveiled really tonight. I think that the Times printed it on Monday. And the genesis of this was that uh, I think if you go to a Paris fashion show or any fashion show, the people that are either side of the runway, the kind of Anna Winters, if you like, they're a collective. They are a kind of tribe. And I thought, wouldn't it be good to, if we were going to do a catwalk with a proper big African cat, let's have a tribe, but let's have a real tribe. And where I was shooting was not far from Zulu Natal, not far from where the great Michael Caine film Zulu was filmed. Uh, so I hustled up through producers, about 150 Zulus. I got them to dress exactly the same way that they dressed in the film Zulu. And then the idea was to have the cat coming down the catwalk with Zulus like a spectator, the spectators in the catwalk show. It's not easy because the cat we used will kill any human other than someone called the Lion Whisperer who uh, is a guy called Kevin Richardson, who we've worked with before. Uh, So it was a long process. The fact that we couldn't have the lion in the open with any individual other than Kevin meant clearly we had to have, there had to be a few tricks involved. But Mm. if you look at the picture, uh, it's seamless. It is, it looks like it's absolutely there. That's the other thing you were talking about, how big its head was, sort of four to five times the size of a, human head and it, you really see that in the picture it's enormous slime coming right at us it's, I mean these photographs are absolutely breathtaking it's an incredibly exciting exhibition and it's only on until the 10th of December at the Maddox Gallery so everyone get down there and look at it as soon as you possibly can yes we can't wait it's gonna be fantastic yeah brilliant Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. Not at all, guys. All the best. Bye-bye. Just before we go, I went to Wadston Manor yesterday, the wildly elaborate French chateau commissioned by the Rothschilds as a weekend pleasure palace in the 19th century. It's now managed by the National Trust under the chairmanship of Jacob Rothschild. And if you want a pre-Christmas treat, I highly recommend a late afternoon or evening out there. It's a short train hop from Marleybone in London to Aylesbury, and it's well worth the trip. They've got a spectacular light and music show with a whole house lit up, plus the beautiful grounds and trees are all lit up. And there's a light show in the stables by the artist Leo Villarreal, who was a guest on this podcast when he had him on to talk about lighting up London's bridges. There are masses of stalls in front of the house selling gifts, plenty of mulled wine and hot chocolate. And the main shop sells more gifts and a very good Wadston wines, which I highly recommend as we did a bit of a wine tasting. It's a really fun thing to do and I hugely enjoyed it. It's extremely popular and tickets are going fast, so make sure you go onto their website, wadston.org.uk and grab one as it's really put me in the Christmas mood. Thank you so much again to Coots, our sponsor. And do visit the website coots.com and discover if its bespoke borrowing solutions could help you achieve that balanced life we're all in search of. Though we do have to remind you that your home may be repossessed if you do not keep up repayments on your mortgage. Credit is subject to status and fees may apply. That's all we've got time for this week, but please keep listening. And of course, our website is countryintownhouse.co.uk, where you can find our sister podcast, House Guests with Carol Annette. And if you add forward slash newsletter, you'll also be able to read the weekly Country and Townhouse newsletter and all the great British brands November newsletter. For now, thank you again to all our listeners. 
and to our wonderful guests. See you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>